Hey, Jay, was Malibu Comics part of the Marvel Universe? Marvel Multiverse, technically, so sort of, but not the Marvel Universe 616 as you think of it. But wait a minute, wasn't Earth 616's juggernaut in Malibu's Exiles comic? He was, but he and a handful of other characters were just there on Multiverse alone. Who else? Oh, let's see. Reaper, Sienna Blaze. Ah, jeez, I'm kind of regretting asking. As you should, Miles. As you should. Um, also, technically, it was all new Exiles. The first Exile series, which was all Malibu characters, actually ended after four issues. What was it about? Well, much like the standard Marvel Exiles package, Malibus were a random group of people plucked from their lives and brought together to prevent some horrible disaster. Originally, it was solicited as a five-issue miniseries, but... They liked it so much they made it an ongoing? They killed the team at the end of number four. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 342 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a pre-onslaught grab bag of... ghost birds? There's a lot going on in this episode. We should say that in keeping with the general terribleness that is the road to Onslaught, um, if I sound much, much worse this week, there's a good reason for that, which is that I am uh, recording in, in my parents' house where I'm visiting right now. My um, mic setup is not the least bit portable, so I am just using my dad's headset that he uses when he is teaching because I figure if it's good enough for New College Philosophy kids, it's good enough for you all. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, to be fair, New College Philosophy kids are pretty great. They are. They're, 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 I assume they're fairly exacting, so... Mm-hmm. So we'll be fine. So, okay, we've been leading up to Onslaught for a while. We still are. The build-up to Onslaught is quite lengthy. Onslaught itself is also quite lengthy, so I would say buckle in, but hopefully you have been buckled in for quite a long time because it's, it, it's safer that way. It is, of course, also always Inferno. It totally is. Jay, I am so excited about the new Inferno series coming out in Modern X-Men. Oh, likewise. Oh looks so intriguing and I, well i don't want to spoil anything but i'm very excited even if where we are it is currently actually always onslaught we refuse to acknowledge that because we just can't quite bring ourselves to and part of that is you know procrastinating a little so the first thing we're going to talk about today is entirely unrelated to onslaught it is a one shot called archangel phantom wings and and well i've I've always wondered what it was about, and honestly, I'm kind of still wondering what it's about. It it certainly is a comic book. Okay, well, it is in continuity, so let's get our backstory on. Well, okay, so rehabilitating villains is a time-honored X-Men tradition. And unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't go super well. In one such case, the villain in question was the amoral mutant serial killer Sabretooth. When Sabretooth escaped the X-Mansion, a number of X-Men tried to bring him back, including Archangel, who had his wings ripped open, and Psylocke, who had her torso ripped open. 
Psylocke was mostly healed and scored a brand new fancy bright red facial tattoo as a result of some mystical shenanigans, but Archangel is healing the traditional old-fashioned depressing way, or at least as much as you can apply that description to, you know, cybernetic and mostly metal wings. See, Warren used to have feathery bird-style wings, or uh, angel-style, if you will, but after being seriously injured in the mutant massacre many years before, those wings went gangrenous and had to be amputated, after which the wingless Warren crashed his airplane into a cliff and seemingly died. In reality, Warren was found by the supervillain Apocalypse who gave him razor-sharp metal wings, blue skin, and a snazzy outfit, and sometime after coming back around to the side of the good guys, he adopted the new codename Archangel. Warren has spent a long time coming to terms with his evil-induced transformation, but his latest injury has him once again pondering how human, uh, mutant, he is. That brings us to Archangel number 1, Phantom Wings, written by Peter Milligan with art by Leonardo Manco and lettering by Jonathan Babcock. I, um... I was really, really shocked when I opened this comic. It is incredibly amateurish. Um, it, it, I would not have been surprised. I would have 100% believed it if someone had handed me a photocopied version of the interiors and told me it was a fanzine made by precocious high schoolers. Which is kind of strange, because the artist, Leonardo Manco, uh, was actually decently well-known for some work on Hellblazer at the time. Like He's definitely a comics artist with comics artist history. I will say I'm not really familiar with his other work, so I don't know how representative this comic is. This comic's also kind of unorthodox artistically in general. Like, it's black and white for starts. Manko strikes me, and I'm, I'm saying this having not looked at any process stuff, but he strikes me as an artist whose inks do his pencils no favors. So it could be that on Hellblazer he was he was working with with other inkers or with a different penciler or with a, with a team. It could also be that colors mitigated a lot of the stuff that I find most difficult with him in black and white. He's not an artist who's well served by black and white in general because his stuff is so so texturally dense that printing it in in one color makes it difficult to decipher. It is a little hard to follow, yeah. I mean, that said, there are certainly some striking images that I quite enjoyed, but I feel like readability should kind of be your highest priority in a comic, unless you're going for a more specifically expressive tone, which I don't know that this comic is. Speaking of readability, Babcock's lettering is a lot of where I get sort of that amateurish feel from. It's, it's just messy. Yeah. Very strange comic for Marvel to be putting out at the height of its ex-glut in the mid-late 90s, but, but here it is, and I'm excited to talk about it because it is very strange. So, where this is located in continuity is a little bit sketchy. Technically, Psylocke is better. She's healed at this point, but she doesn't have the Crimson Dawn mark that came with that healing. Given other idiosyncrasies in the art, I'm willing to just accept that as a continuity error. I think that's fine. And I mean, remember, the issue where Psylocke got her cool Crimson Dawn face tattoo? There was that big reveal panel at the end that didn't actually show it? So this is not without precedent. Maybe it manifested slowly. It's possible. I mean, it's mystical. Maybe it just gradually fades in. You know, mystically. Goes in and out at first for a while, sort of like a staticky signal. 
that would actually be kind of awesome. And given that her Crimson Dawn powers are shadow-based, that could be even more awesome. All right, I can run with that. Now, we begin this with a plane crashing into a flock of birds, and cut from there immediately to a formal dinner with Psylocke and Archangel, which ends with Betsy yelling into the sky. Warren, the restaurant's great. The chickens swell. I think self-pity's really sexy. Which should give you a sense of how the rest of the dinner had gone. Warren is, uh, yes, as uh, he often does, flying away in a cloud of self-pity. No one knows his pain. No one knows what he lost when his real wings, the ones he was born with, were butchered from his back. Amputated and later replaced with these monstrosities by the madman known as Apocalypse. So he still flies, but at what price? Sometimes he can smell them dangling in gangrenous lumps from his scapulae. That's vivid. So Peter Milligan writes this comic. I'm mostly familiar with Milligan from Ecstatics, the X-reality TV show comic, to oversimplify. He did a strange run of X-Men for a while as well, the Blood of Apocalypse story, that thing where Magneto turned into a different lady to try to seduce Gambit to show Rogue that Gambit was a dirtbag, that sort of thing. That wasn't Magneto, that was definitely Mystique. Mystique is definitely what I meant. Their name starts with the same letter. Anyway, Magneto's probably Mystique half the time, it's Mystique. That would have been an amazing storyline, though. God, it really would. Uh, but anyway, uh, all of that aside, overall, I really like Milligan as a writer, but his stories are, I guess for lack of a better word, always some level of quirky. And how much that quirky does or doesn't work kind of varies based on who you are as a reader and which story you're reading. I feel like there's a concept execution gap here. And I'm not sure which end it's coming from, because there's not really an end of this that's not pretty messy. Yeah, no, that's very true. Well, and speaking of uh, messy things, there's my segue. It seems a little weird that Warren is being all angsty again about his wings. Like, he spent a long time trying to get over that. And one thing I appreciate, and one thing that does situate this story in continuity a bit, is that he mentions that he keeps thinking about something Sabretooth said when Sabretooth cut his wings open recently, which is that what was flowing through those wings was not blood. It was something unnatural. I believe we call that ichor around these parts. Mmm, bird ichor. From under a bird carapace. I mean, kind of. Metal bird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, you gotta be careful with a story like this. You don't want to go back to the angst well too often, lest your angst run dry, and you just start pulling up buckets of angst dust, which is much less refreshing, uh, to belabor a metaphor. But I think this is a good way to, if you're going to go back to that angst well, to at least, you know, moisturize it a little more. Well, now that the metaphor well's dried up... We move on to, to what happens to Warren. Um, so while he is in the midst of his, his, his angsty flight, he is overcome with pain and crashes. And he awakens in the custody of a post-apocalyptic-looking person in fancy armor and a gas mask. Okay, Jay, say what you will about the art. I, I agree, overall it's kind of hard to follow. She looks awesome. It's like this weird sewer-dwelling Mad Max feather-covered, techno-lance-wielding look that makes zero sense in the context of the plot, but that's fine. I guess it does get across that this lady has been, you know, having to fend for herself with limited resources for a long time. Uh, 
I don't know. This might fall under the it doesn't have to make sense if it's awesome philosophy. So you mentioned it doesn't quite make sense, and that's the case at a lot of points. It's often really difficult to tell exactly what is happening in this comic, let alone why. For instance, um, around this point in the story, Gina's trying to work out what's going on when Betsy up and slaps her for no apparent reason, and they just sort of brush across it in the dialogue. I can only assume that one of those weird birds was about to hit Gene in the face or something. I no, because the birds aren't attacking them. Oh, well, um, I don't know. Maybe they were scared of the reader. Maybe the reader was looking at them funny. Anyway, as Gene and Betsy try to piece things together from the outside, Warren discovers that his captor is a hot lady named Tuesday with red dawn-looking eye makeup who is beset by a giant flock of enraged birds. Angry birds, even. But, like, not those angry birds. But what if they were? Neither Warren nor Tuesday is sure where they are or how they got there, um, but she is sure that it's a great idea to sneak in and anoint his wings with oil while she thinks he's asleep, leading to the most awkward flirtation scene this side of George Lucas. As Warren says, I know what you do at night, Tuesday. I know what you do to my wings. I thought you were asleep. For the last few nights, you've caressed them. You've treated them with oils and ointments. Gently. Tenderly. Why do you do it? Because... Because since I've been here, everything bird-like has been horrible and out for revenge. But when I saw you... Do it now, Tuesday. But this time... Do it in the light. I... I'm not often speechless, but... But there you go. There, that, that happens. Uh, you, I don't know. I mean, okay, Warren... I'm gonna do my best here. Warren is obviously angsty about his wings. He's got a complicated relationship with these metal replacement wings for his awesome bird wings. And he resents them, but they're also all he has. And so maybe he has to come to terms with them. And she's cherishing them as part of him. And that is really cool, you know, to accept someone's trauma as not just something they have to deal with, but as something that's part of their identity. And then they're having sexy wing oiling stuff miles buddy i love your positivity but not everything demands apologia i don't know otherwise what are we left with here birds mostly there are a lot of birds so many birds and one of those birds is actual hawk warren kenneth worthington the third who tells tuesday the story of his original wings and what happened to them there once was a man a young man he was blessed. He had everything. He even had wings. And what wings? It wasn't just that they allowed him to fly. They gave him a world of feeling. They were alive, shockingly sensitive, sublimely sensuous. He made sacrifices, was injured. The wings were amputated. I wanted them back so badly. And amid that overwrought dialogue is actually a really beautiful panel of Warren in chains being held by this woman Tuesday uh, with this beautiful shading across his body. Like, the art is so inconsistent. Sometimes I genuinely love it. Other times I can't tell what the hell is going on. Uh, shortly thereafter, he dreams that his old wings are inside the metal ones waiting to burst out, which we're going to find out later is actually kind of true. 
I think here it's intended just as a, a metaphor of some sort. I don't know that Milligan knew that that was going to be a plot point like a year-ish later. Well, and again, you know, we're working with a fairly dry metaphor well. Anyway, it turns out that Tuesday's last name is Bird, and they're actually in a place called Bird Tower that her husband, a business magnate, owned, and also she and her husband are both dead because he was abusive, and when they were flying their private plane, she brained him with a wrench, and they crashed through a bunch of birds, and once she comes to terms with that, she and the birds disappear. Tuesday's gone with the wind, Jay. That was absolutely uncalled for i don't know so yeah uh tuesday bird is a ghost um who showed up for warren because he's kind of a bird i guess and uh warren tells psylocke the whole story with a heavy veneer of it doesn't really count as cheating and psylocke is about as weirded out as i am Thanks, dead, rich, bird-fighting, wing-oiling ghost lady for helping Warren come to terms with, I don't know, something. Yeah, so so that's that's the Archangel one-shot right there that exists in comic book form. I appreciate how bonkers it is. Like, I wasn't sure where the plot was going to go, but I definitely didn't think it was going to go there. Yeah, I saw absolutely none of it coming. At any point. It's not entirely without precedent, though. Do you remember the 4 and 20 Blackbirds, those vampires that Warren got involved with a long time ago in X-Factor? Fondly. Yeah, so he is no stranger to being confused by various spectral people. Uh, we just get a little more of that now. I mean, okay, there's some gothitude to Warren, especially once he becomes Archangel. So, you know, and then, like, I mean, birds and... uh ghosts and here we are look i feel like he could deal with a lot of this by just getting like a cravat and some big stompy boots that maybe seems uh like a healthier response i don't know i i do love me a good character study it this comic this comic jay as i often say in connection to the more baffling moments of warren kenneth worthington the third rich people aren't like us they really, really aren't. Listeners, this issue is on Marvel Unlimited. I I think you should all read it, just so you can tell us what you think it's about. I, I'm really curious. I just want you to follow your hearts. Into a cloud of birds. Uh, so that happened. It did. Uh, we're we're going to be covering two other issues, but it almost seems a shame to, because I feel like that just is is such a... Such a such a thing on its own. It's it's just sort of standing in in perfect perfect solitude. Well, we've still got some onslaught leading to cover. Uh, this is why we can't have nice things, like the Archangel's one shot. <laughs> so, 1996 is not a great time to be a mutant. Anti-mutant zealot Graydon Creed is running for president on a campaign of xenophobia and preserving the mutant-fearing status quo. Good thing nothing like that would ever happen in real life. Wah-wah. And he's been working with a shadowy, quasi-governmental organization who's been stealing mutant intel and creating mutant-hunting entities like the Hound over in X-Factor. 
Meanwhile, a strange and powerful psychic entity has been appearing to various ex-teams and some other folks to make cryptic statements, engage in some occasional vandalism, and occasionally send out henchmen to test the X-Men in combat. And the same mysterious being, called Onslaught, seems to be stealing anti-mutant technology and again tagging its locations with his name. If that sounds like descriptions of the villains of not the next one crossover, but the next two crossovers, well then, good call. You've learned your 90s X-Men. Oh god, is it always already Operation Zero Tolerance? I mean, kind of. And actually, I want to talk about that. But first, let's talk about Uncanny X-Men number 333, The Other Shoe. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Pasquale Ferry, inked by Tim Townsend, Rob Hunter, Mark Morales, and Chad Hunt, colored by Team Gucci, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. This is a part of continuity where Uncanny and Adjectiveless X-Men are literally just leading one title into the other, into the first, into the second. Like, you just have to read both of them at this point, straight up. They're basically the same series. Pretty much. The issue's narration opens, telling us all about the views of one Senator Robert Kelly and his history with mutants. He's against them. You, of course, may remember Senator Kelly from being important in the Days of Future Past storyline, where his potential assassination could have triggered a dark future. You may remember him in a somewhat similar role in the first X-Men movie. And, in context of that role, as the world's worst licensed toy ever created. Oh yeah, like they did a toy of when he turned into a slime guy, right? Uh-huh. It's very upsetting. It truly, truly is. Anyway, Kelly's gone back and forth on exactly where he stands with mutants. Overall, he's got a lot of history. He doesn't trust them. He's not, like, evil, evil, evil the way Graydon Creed seems to be, but he's still somewhat unpleasant and not the X-Men's friend. He also keeps a gun out in his house, which is a bad practice in which you shouldn't engage. That is bad gun safety, Senator Robert Kelly. He draws that gun when he hears a noise in his house. But don't worry, it's only Cyclops, who is there because Senator Kelly called the X-Men for help. He looks very, very dramatic, though, in all the shadows. Oh yeah, like the shadows of the window crossbars on this clearly dark and stormy night are over Cyclops, and there are like dead leaves and branches over him as well, and he's all sparkly from his visor and his weird yellow metal shoulder thingam. It's extra funny because this is mid-90s Cyclops, who's very heavily informed by the incredibly boring cartoon version. So it's like, you know, your local corporate accountant making a really dramatic entrance to like tell you about your tax returns? Stand down, Wolverine. So, two things about this scene. Thing one, this is a time-honored and effective way to show how desperate a situation is getting. You have enemies becoming allies. You have the good guys and the bad guys uniting against, like, the worst guys. My understanding, though, was that Kelly had become a tentative, at least sometimes, ally to mutants. I mean, he had. He was still pissed off that his wife got killed in a mutant fight, though, so, you know, there's that. Ooh. Other thing, though? So, Senator Robert Kelly? I mean, there's R. Kelly, but Robert Kelly is also the name of the person that directed Donnie Darko, which is one of the only movies I've ever seen made much worse by its director's cut. So much worse. Anyway... Uh, director Robert Kelly talks about how, alright, you know, I was okay with the Mutant Registration Act, I was okay with the Sentinels, I was okay with Project Wide Awake, because 
human mutant violence is going to screw things up for everybody, and I was just trying to get things under control. Cyclops responds, I'll be the first to concede that certain mutants can be dangerous. In fact, that is one of the primary reasons that the X-Men were formed. But most mutants don't want to destroy the world, or even to rule it. Most of us would be happy to be left alone, to live our lives like any normal human. Unfortunately, it may be too late for that. But before Kelly can explain, his house blows up because Graydon Creed, presidential candidate and Sabretooth's trash kid, has been listening in from a van outside. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we have Graydon Creed trying to kill Senator Kelly in a story that will ultimately be all about future Sentinels? Mm Mm-hmm. Like mother, like son! Mystique totally did the same thing! Maybe they can bond. Maybe there's hope for their familial relationship after all. I am inclined to doubt that. Yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, that is going to weirdly be continued in an issue of X-Force that we will get to pretty soon. But yeah, what we're seeing now is that the moderate anti-mutant folks are now being targeted for death by the extreme anti-mutant folks. And you know what kind of works? I It always bugs me when you have a new villain show up and you see how badass that new villain is because he just kills a bunch of inconsequential characters or kills the last villain. But in this case, like, okay... I mean, we have different philosophies and levels of bigotry slash caution coming into conflict with each other to each better define the other. I feel okay about that. And if you're going to have a pure anti-mutant villain, you could do a lot worse than Graydon Creed. You could do a lot better for president, though. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, let's learn more about that faction of anti-mutant jerks. Let's head to the Pentagon. The Pentagon, over which the Blackbird is hovering neatly cloaked, while Jean Grey and Gambit infiltrate a top-secret government military meeting. Cannonball, now a member of the X-Men, feels kind of weird about this whole thing. He's certainly gone up against the government a number of times, but that was when he was part of X-Force. That's kind of part of their deal, and now, well, this is the X-Men. Iceman, for his part, points out that X-Factor is the team that's really around to deal with government stuff, so this should maybe be in their purview. Alas, it is not. And we have a bunch of other members of the team. Wolverine is here, not quite being himself in that he has no nose and red eyes and no shirt. Actually, we only see him from the waist up. Do you think he's just straight up naked? Yes. Okay, we have a a, a naked murder uncle hanging out here. Um, not Not really appropriate, I gotta say, Logan. Also with us is Beast, who likewise is not exactly himself, in that this is the Beast from Earth-295, the Age of Apocalypse, who has imprisoned the Earth-616 Beast and sneakily replaced him. I appreciate that he has come to regret this decision almost immediately. Like, this entire ruse was to not be noticed by Mr. Sinister, and his first goddamn mission out, he comes up against Mr. Sinister. And now he's realizing, like, okay, I'm trying to pretend to be part of this team, but I have no idea what I'm doing, and so everyone keeps looking at me like I'm some kind of buffoon. Also, this is pointless and totally not why I'm here. It's accomplishing basically nothing. I really appreciate that. Like, I think that's actually really funny. That he just didn't think this plan through at all? Yeah, and that they actually acknowledge and play with that. Oh man, so many people died for a plan that accomplishes nothing for for one Hank McCoy. Two Hank McCoys, I guess. 
I neither Hank McCoy is having a very good time with this. No, no, they're not. Well, anyway, inside, like you said, Gambit and Phoenix, uh, Phoenix being Jean Grey at this point, are infiltrating a sub-basement headquarters where a meeting is being held. And, you know, I appreciate good signage. I um, do not have a good sense of direction, so that helps me not get lost. And so if I were trying to infiltrate the base of Operation Zero Tolerance, then having gigantic, hovering, holographic, computer font-looking letters cover the entire gigantic tunnel right in front of me, I would appreciate that. Seems useful. Totally. So inside, past these hovering letters, various military and government folks from multiple countries are hanging out listening to Bastion. No, not the one from The NeverEnding Story. Before we get to that, I want to talk about powers and I want to talk about Gambit's eyes. Because they're trying not to use their powers because Forge has has rigged the Pentagon with a bunch of mutant detecting gear. But Jean is using hers to mask Gambit's eyes to make them look normal, and I want to know why he can't just wear contacts. Gambit find contacts uncomfortable. You know, we all make sacrifices for the work, Gambit. He also seems to have really clean-cut short hair, but he's got like a giant ponytail. Do you think he just like tucked it into the back of his collar? Yes. Okay, well, it seems to be working for the time being, at least, as they face Bastion. So, okay, Bastion is going to be a big deal. He's the big villain of Operation Zero Tolerance, the storyline, but I guess also the organization that we're seeing right here, which is going to be the crossover after the Onslaught crossover. Does he have pink hair, or is that just sort of the tinting in the panel? I think it's just the tinting. His hair is traditionally whitish or grayish, but there's a definite pink color scheme. He also has a downward-pointing triangle on his chest, and um, that's certainly supposed to evoke Nimrod. Spoiler, it'll turn out a while later, he is the reborn version of a fusion of Nimrod, the future sentinel, and Master Mold, the giant sentinel that poops out smaller sentinels. Is he also involved in Act Up? Yeah, yeah, I didn't really make the pink and upside-down triangle connection uh, until just now reading this. I mean, to be fair, the triangle itself is black, he's just got a pink color scheme. Yeah, it's still a little bit iffy. It is a little strange. You know, tangent, I do appreciate that one of the scariest X-Men villains of all time, Nimrod, is largely pink-themed. You don't see that very often. I appreciate that. I mean, so are the Sentinels. They're more purple. The fuchsia. Okay, okay. Well, they're very pretty. So, this character showing up actually calls back to Uncanny X-Men number 247, way back in the day. That was when the Nimrod Master Mold Hybrid went through the portal Siege Perilous, and hasn't been seen since, I believe. Maybe he should have been Hulk at some point? I don't remember. But that was also the issue where Senator Kelly's wife died because of the fight between the X-Men and that robotic entity. So, it's kind of weird that this is in some ways a direct sequel to one specific, not particularly well-remembered X-Men comic from many, many years before. I think a lot of sort of odd moments are... One of the long, long traditions of X-Men, especially post-Claremont, is new writers coming in and finding story hooks to latch onto wherever they happen to pick those up. And I really appreciate that. I mean, obviously, Jay, you and I are big fans of continuity, and it's nice to see people who also appreciate that and put the work in. I would have appreciated some of that background being recapped. I think this is one of those situations where... A brief, you know, aside makes a lot of sense to include. 
it may be that we're going to get one of those later in the story, but we definitely don't right now. Yeah, the nature of Bastion won't be revealed for a very, very long time. What we know about him now is that he, A, is a charismatic, powerful leader who's uniting all of these people from various countries into one gigantic global pro-human group. We also find from Gene that he can't have his mind read. And in fact, once he realizes that Gene and Remy are Gene and Remy and pulls a gun on them, we find that her telekinesis doesn't work against him either. This is something that'll make more sense when he's, you know, far, far, far in the future revealed to be a fusion of two mutant hunting robots. Right, that's sort of part of the Sentinel deal. So, Phoenix and Gambit book it. They have a much better idea of what's going on here, which, uh, spoiler, not great. And also, they don't want to get shot to death by a bunch of confused military people and a gigantic pink-clad man who is telekinesis-proof. Yeah, according to the Xavier Protocols, most of the X-Men are weak against guns. I mean, fair enough. So are we. Yeah, no, that's sort of the point. Yeah, the Xavier Protocols always struck me as really weird, because like with most, most of the heroes, you could just kill them most of the ways you could kill a human. You don't really need separate protocols for it. Right, I mean, you know, you basically have to kill Logan the same way you'd kill a vampire, with cutting his head off and putting it somewhere else and probably shoving some garlic in his mouth, but most of the other ones... Then you'd just get two of him. Oh, jeez. And one of them would have garlic breath. As Jean and Gambit make their escape, they notice that they apparently have had some help, because the many, many heavily armed guards outside are all asleep. Thanks, as it turns out, to that familiar psychic face we saw in X-Men number 50, the mysterious, powerful psychic entity who was in some way involved with the big guy named Post that fought the X-Men in a confusing fashion. So what do we think about Operation Zero Tolerance being built up so early on? This almost feels like a red herring at this point, because it looks like it's about to become the next big thing. And we know it's definitely not. The next big thing is Onslaught. I think it kind of works. I don't know. I know there was a lot of editorial interference in this era, so I don't know if that was the plan to have Operation Zero Tolerance be the next crossover. But... One of the things we really see as Onslaught builds is increasing anti-mutant sentiment and thus increasing frustration for Charles Xavier. That's kind of part of the deal with Onslaught, since Onslaught will turn out to be a manifestation of his his frustration, his rage, his dark side. So you kind of have a self-perpetuating cycle there. You kind of do, yeah. And, you know, there's also the fact that we'll find in the wake of Onslaught, when that becomes public, that a mutant was behind this big disaster, Operation Zero Tolerance will have much, much more justification for the extreme measures it takes. So introducing both of these events at once, I think actually super, super works because they each make the other better. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. That takes us to X-Men number 53, False Fronts. Written by Mark Wade, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Cam Smith with John Dell, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And, okay, Andy Hubert's pretty good. I think Andy Hubert's, like, really good in this issue. Yeah, he's really, really solid here. He's working with a lot of chaos, and he handles it very, very nicely. Oh yeah, from extremely mundane settings, to flashbacks aping other artists' styles, to astral plane cosmic nonsense, to an issue essentially of a whole bunch of conversations that is incredibly dynamic and engaging. So, here we go. If if there could be said to be a a part of the Onslaught lead-up where we are fully in the Onslaught zone, yeah, it's this issue. Is the Onslaught zone like the friend zone? 
I mean, I don't know. Friend zone's nice. As you've said, it's where we keep our friends. Yeah, I guess the onslaught zone is just really bad. Yeah, probably. Well, anyway, the issue starts off very innocuous, which I think is actually a great way to lead into what will turn into be a big event. Jean Grey is going dress shopping in Salem Center. As she is, we see both the dialogue, the actual conversations she's having with people, and their thoughts, which she's not really bothering to screen out. Usually she does, but it's extra work and she can just sort of get through it now. It's not great, though. It's frustrating and distracting. Yeah, a lot of these people are polite to her with their spoken words, but are suspicious or jealous or just being jerks in their minds. And then... Suddenly, out of nowhere, while she's in a dressing room, in this double-page spread, she dissolves all liquid-like into this spacey-looking astral plane, and there's Onslaught. There is Onslaught, full-body, unobscured, for, I think, the first time we've seen him, and the design, I don't know, maybe it's just Qbert, but Onslaught looks really, really cool here. Like, how would we describe this dude, this psychic whatever? Magneto, but 90s are... Kind of, yeah. Like, like Magneto, but Super Saiyan. Magneto's Megazord. Like, Magneto's third-stage Pokemon evolution? He seriously just is Magneto, but more so. But, like, 90s to the max. He's super buff. His eyes are just little points of glowing light in the shadows of his helmet. Now, this is weird as hell narratively, because no one ever sees him and goes, Oh, Magneto. But clearly, it's just a scarier-looking version of Magneto. There is no subtlety here. And Onslaught says, Hello, Jean. You do not know me, but trust me, we have much to discuss. So he claims he's here to help mutants. To prepare them, and to especially prepare Jean herself for the upcoming flashpoint in the human-mutant conflict. And Jean's like, yo, I follow Professor X's dream of peaceful coexistence, at which point Onslaught shows Jean to demonstrate how terrible humanity is, basically the same thing she just saw, with people maybe being nice to each other uh, with their external words, but kind of being jerks in their minds, saying that they're all hypocrites. And she points out that she's already aware of this, that's just people, the point is that they're, they're acting in their better nature, and he blows up a building in frustration, but fortunately it turns out to be a, an illusion. Jean, at this point, takes the time to ask who he is, which gets us one of Onslaught's best lines. I am frustration. Again, she just does not make the Magneto connection, which is so weird considering what he looks like. Yeah, yeah. Well, or the Professor X connection for that matter. But we're getting there, and I think this issue actually does a genuinely deft job at starting to foreshadow that eventual reveal. So, okay... It's time for another Christmas Carol-like jaunt through time and space as Onslaught continues to attempt to convince Jean that humanity sucks. This time they head to the presidential headquarters of the aforementioned Graydon Creed. And there, there's a ton of anti-mutant rhetoric and Onslaught says that's not even the issue. The issue is half these people don't even believe in it. They are literally just willing to throw mutants under the bus for their own external ambitions. This is not a surprise to Jean. I'm aware of it. This is exactly why I endeavor to shut out the thoughts of ordinary people. Better yet, this is why I surround myself with friends. 
And that's what this entity latches onto next, saying, oh, you think you can trust your friends? Really? Let's head over to Professor Charles Xavier himself. And here it becomes clear that this entity knows basically everything about the X-Men, which freaks Jean out a little. There is this phenomenal goddamn panel of Jean and the entity diving into Xavier's unraveling head. Like, it just opens up, it unspools, and there are there's this cosmic starscape inside, like the astral plane, essentially. It looks really great. Andy Hubert has killed it with this issue. And unfortunately, what's inside Xavier's head is a detail best left forgotten, dredged up from X-Men number three. From frickin' 1964... I do appreciate that Hubert actually does a great Jack Kirby-style reproduction of those panels. But you may recall the dialogue and the thoughts there, when it, where Xavier says, Be careful, Jean. Don't worry, sir. Remember how well you've trained us. And Xavier thinks, Don't worry, as if I could help worrying about the one I love. But I can never tell her I have no right. And that justly freaks Jean out. She's just been telling Onslaught about how she thinks of Xavier as a father figure. None of this has ever come up before, and that's creepy as hell. It totally is. And Mark Wade, listen, Mark Wade, I really like you as a writer overall. You did not need to bring that up. But honestly, the comic itself almost apologizes for it immediately. As Onslaught says, Relax. It's not a torch he's been carrying, believe me. He locked it away long ago. Forgot about it. Like every other negative emotion Charles Xavier ever felt, he entombed it, tapped it down, buried it. And his goal, he tells her is to get her to be his consort, to embrace the power of Onslaught the way she did with the Phoenix Force. Jean will have none of this because Jean's awesome and actually pays attention to the situations that she's lived through. Whoever you are, you fumbled the ball trying to stir up my anger, my disappointment. I live in a world of hypocrites? This is news to me? Get real! I'm used to it. It doesn't make me angry anymore. It doesn't make people evil. So let's talk about this, because we of course know that Onslaught really is Xavier's repressed frustration, his dark side. Obviously, Xavier knows Jean Grey extremely well, and that's weird. I feel like Charles would get that, no, he's not going to be able to manipulate Jean in this fashion. Like, she's too smart for that. So is part of Xavier's dark side, like assuming that he's that much smarter than the people around him, even though he knows better? Oh, unquestionably. And I think part of Onslaught is also his cynicism and his belief that everyone else is just a nudge. And specifically, just a bit of a lapse from the ever-virtuous Charles Xavier away from going evil. Yeah. And this part really works. Like, okay, I'm... I've mentioned I'm not an Onslaught fan, but I love this buildup. This is handled amazingly well. Of course, Onslaught's biggest goal would be to prove himself right, to prove that the frustration that he is literally psychically composed of is accurate. And if he could take the closest person to Charles Xavier, arguably, Jean Grey, and convince her 
to give in to her her own id, her own frustration, her own bitterness, then he essentially wins. It's basically a tug of war between the two sides of Xavier with Jean in the middle. The other reason he goes for Jean, I think, is that he sees her as an easy target because he's seen it happen before. Oh, with Dark Phoenix, you mean? Right, exactly. And also because in a lot of ways, she's the closest thing he has to appear. She's definitely his protege, at least as a telepath. And I think part of his hubris as a mentor is seeing a lot more of himself and his students than necessarily is there. Yeah. Well, and I think that especially works for Jean. She even mentions when she's talking to Onslaught, telling him how, no, she trusts Professor X, that they have a bond. She was the only person he told when he faked his own death to build up his telepathy to fight some aliens that one time. Oh, the Silver Age. Oh, the Silver Age. But that's something that she's proud of. And in a sense, yeah, I think that's something that makes Professor X maybe a little, I don't know if arrogance the right word, but the idea that all of the people who cared about him, the only one that mattered enough to tell her that he was alive was the person with compatible powers. Oh, he's absolutely arrogant. And Emma Frost even brings up later that that he clearly continually favors telepaths. Totally does. Onslaught is frustrated at this point, in addition to being literally frustration, and so he grabs the psychic model of the Phoenix Flare that he was using to try to lure Jean to the side of power, and he grows and he grows and he grows until it's just this tiny little bird-shaped candle flame in his hand, and he just clenches his fist and snuffs it out, and what a fucking image that is. At which point... Jean drops back into the dressing room with Onslaught psychically burned into her forehead. And that's the big reveal. Like, oh, this is the Onslaught we've been hearing so much about? That guy? It's easy to forget that with all, like, the Onslaught marketing that had been going on, that, you know, the next issue, Onslaught, that had been happening in various comics, like, the X-Men actually don't know anything about who Onslaught is kind of right up until this point. And at this point, they claim not to. Yeah, and at this point, somehow the fact that a giant Magneto who keeps referencing Professor X being mad at the world, they don't really figure that part out for a little bit. I mean, I guess to their credit, it's not like the big reveal at the end of the crossover. It happens kind of early on, but but come on, people. There is one person who does know who Onslaught is, and he appears for the first time in Colorado, where Archangel and Psylocke are training when a huge shadowy figure screams for help and bursts in, and it turns out it's the Juggernaut. Which is really weird and makes no sense, except, as we'll later find, because the shadows of the Crimson Dawn that are now part of Betsy are connected to the dimension of Sidorak, the god that empowers the Juggernaut, it actually totally ties in, which is neat and fun. Uh, So Juggernaut as we alluded to in the cold open, has been gone for a little while. He doesn't know how he got here, but he knows he has a giant critical secret to tell, something that is is essential and it's horrible, and he can't get the words out. He's got some kind of psychic block preventing him from saying it. It's actually kind of hilarious. I doubt it's intended to be, but he has this great big lead up and preamble like, okay, this thing I have to tell you, it's so big, you're not going to believe what a significant thing this is. We have to talk about this or else the world is super screwed. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready for me to say the thing? I'm going to say the thing. And he can't. 
and in his frustration, he X-factors straight through the wall and off a cliff and runs off to New York to the one person he knows will be able to help him with anything repressed, that being, of course, Professor Xavier. Charles, get into my head! So I um, ran an Exalted game for a while. It's a role-playing game that's very over-the-top and fantastical. And uh, one of my players had a character who was immune to most damage up to a certain point. And I had had the party climb this, like, gigantically tall tower, just making it take forever to get across uh, how impressive and large this thing was. And when they had to go down, he's like, I jump out the window. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I, I did the math. Um, this ability I have means that that much fall damage won't actually kill me. I can heal from it almost immediately. I'm like, but, but, but you, it's, it's a big tower. You, no, you, you can't use it that way. No, then the narrative stuff I'm trying to do won't work as well if you, God damn it. Okay, fine. My scene was boring. Fine. Fine. Damn it. You can't out Kyle, Kyle. You can't out Kyle, Kyle. So there we are. We are now very much in the immediate lead-up to Onslaught. And I will say, if I was just looking at this issue, I would be incredibly excited. This is a perfectly executed lead-in to a great big event. I love this issue so goddamn much. What if we just stop here? (laughs) Our next episode is just us saying, and then the Onslaught story happened, and it was very good. The end. No, no, we just say, and then Onslaught happened, and we just go on as as if we had covered it. (laughs) Nice. Well, what's also nice, and more fun than a lot of Onslaught, although maybe not more than this issue. Anyway, we've got some great listeners, and they've got some great questions. All right. Pickle Tornado asks via email, Are there any instances of Logan knowing a lot about teenage girl stuff that he's picked up over the years from his wards? I'm the best there is at what I do, and what I do is stan K-pop boy bands. Okay, but for real... I'm not sure if you're referring Pickle Tornado, great name by the way, to sort of stereotypical teenage girly stuff or just the stuff that Logan's various wards are into. I actually kind of want to answer the second part because I think that'll be fun to talk about. We know that Wolverine has had this series of younger female protégés. So I guess let's just kind of go through. I mean, I feel like we should probably start with Kate Pride, right? Kitty at the time. Right. So I feel like from her, the first thing Logan would have learned a ton about is figure skating. She was super into that. And also dance. Actually, I could totally see them doing a bunch of dance together. Him just uh, training in the context of, no, 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 this applies to being a ninja, but also being kind of secretly excited that he would get to dance with his buddy. You know what? I feel like even if he does know what they're talking about, he always pretends he doesn't. That's true. Yeah. Although with Kitty's other big interest, you know, technology in general, computer programming in particular, I feel like he would be super supportive about that. And okay, I didn't have as much time to research this question as I was hoping, so there may actually be concrete examples, but I could see Logan at least paying enough attention to her talking about programming to ask good questions. Uh, He's a bit of a Luddite, historically. I know, but he and Kitty also had, like, a genuinely respectful relationship. They gave each other shit a little, but they were totally peers and were totally into each other's stuff that each other cared about. That brings us to Jubilee, who I feel like would have been the most likely to force Logan to sit through a lecture about new kids on the block. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Jubilee is delightfully terrible. And Logan would absolutely acknowledge that that was the case, I think in part because he realizes that Jubilee enjoys him being grumpy at her. Let's see, you've got Armor and Pixie. 
I've read so much X-Men. I don't know Armor and Pixie's dynamic with Logan very well, and I don't know them very well as characters. I feel like they've been written extremely inconsistently. Like, it's hard to get to the core of who those characters are and of what their relationship with Logan was, other than just, you know, hanging out with him and being his sidekicks. I feel like with both of those, we saw more unidirectional influence than we did with Kitty and Jubilee. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. There's more interplay with Kitty and Jubilee. They did have more of that peer relationship, even though Jubilee was, for instance, much, much younger. That leaves Laura Kinney. That leaves X-23 slash Other Wolverine. Who is not really plugged into teen girl stuff herself, except in as much as the things she as a teen girl is into are therefore teen girl stuff. You know, she and Logan, I mean, they're close in a lot of ways, but I think they've in large part bonded through their trauma, which makes sense. I mean, she went through a lot of the same Weapon X stuff that he did. So honestly, if they were just going to hang out and be people together, I feel like probably Gabby would be the one to make that happen. You know who has mentored several of those characters and does definitely know who the like distinct personas in every boy band are? are Gabbit. Yeah. Yeah, Gambit. You know, everybody forgets, Gambit was an incredible, like, big brother slash cool uncle figure to Laura in a dynamic I never would have thought worked until I read it, and it totally did and has continued to do so. Likewise, Jubilee, if I recall correctly. Uh, yeah, yeah, they've had some some good interactions as well. So, uh, well done, Remy LeBeau, which is not something I always have an opportunity to say. Mark emailed to tell us about a topical intersection of our interests. As Mark writes, In my working life, I'm the managing editor of a hematology journal. Today I came across a reference to X-Men disease, and with a little digging in our archives, learned about X-linked immunodeficiency with magnesium defect, EBV infection, and neoplasia, or X-Men for short. The good news, per our um, newly published paper, is that CRISPR is a promising tool to treat it, and normally I groan at backronyms, but I'll make an exception for this one. Thank you so much, Mark, for letting us know. That's really awesome. That's right up there with the strange little bugs that were named after Gary Larson because they looked like the way he drew bugs in Farside. Oh, absolutely. Ah, the world. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. So here, once more, is the angry Claremontian narrator. Eddie Webb. I keep trying to write thanks for you, But your name is far more evocative than anything I can come up with, so way to ruin it for not only yourself, but also Alex, who through no fault of his own is also up for acknowledgement this week. Thanks a lot. And from here, the mic goes to a flock of wrathful psychic bird ghosts. (laughs) Jojo seems. Andrew Isla. I'm a bird. And with that. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Sarasota, Florida, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
Next week, we continue to follow the build-up to Onslaught as Cyclops and Senator Kelly's unlikely team-up drops them smack in the middle of X-Force. 